Thank you. I am excited to get into the Word this morning and just want to remind you, uh, because we need to be reminded, don't we, of the good things in the world. I want to remind you that the good news of Jesus is the answer to our broken world. Don't forget that. The good news of Jesus is the answer to our broken world because it's the only thing that's the answer to the brokenness inside of us. It really is. That what Jesus came to do when Jesus saw human beings struggling in their sin, even though it was the opposite of what God has designed us to do and told us to do, Jesus did the opposite from what we would do. He didn't neglect us, he didn't reject us, he didn't leave us behind, he actually came to be with us. He came to live among us, to relate to every piece of brokenness that we feel in life, and then after he had lived a perfect life in the midst of all of that brokenness, he gave his life as a substitution for the punishment we deserved. That our selfishness, our pride, our arrogance, our neglect of one another, our love for ourselves more than God or anybody else, all of those things deserve punishment. Jesus took that punishment for us on the cross, and then after we had unjustly killed him as a human race, he rose from the dead by the power of God to say, if you will trust me to be a substitute for your life, my perfect life, Jesus says, my sacrifice that I didn't deserve, if you will let that be a substitute for your imperfect life, I will give you what I deserved, which is eternal life. And that's the good news of Jesus. Here's the crazy thing, though. We often reduce eternal life to something that happens after we die. And Jesus it was very clear that eternal life begins the moment that we put our trust in him. Eternal life means that we truly flourish. We begin to live life the way it was intended to be. We begin to live life with an identity that is rooted in the love of a heavenly father for us. We begin to love him and love one another and even in a healthy, non-selfish way, love ourselves and we begin to flourish. Because it's through those kinds of joyful, uh, uncomplicated, not negotiable relationships that we begin to flourish in life. And can you imagine for a moment what your family would be like if you never had to vie for acceptance or love? Or what would your workplace be like if you knew that no matter what, you had a job waiting for you and a, a raise at the end of the day and the boss was going to affirm you and, and there was going to be a, a natural sense of success and purpose for you in that career? Or what would it be like if your neighbors and you lived in harmony together and they weren't, you know, parking on your lawn or letting theirs grow long when you just mowed yours or, you know, they burned your lawn with their fertilizer? I don't know. These are the only ways neighbors connect anymore is by lawn wars because we just pull in our garages and don't talk to each other. Or we run in our house because our garage is too full of stuff that we don't use so we can't use our garage I've lived that life, okay? So anyways, all that to say that we, can you imagine what it would be like to live in relationships that are defined not by mistrust, not by suspicion and negotiation, but, but lives and relationships that are defined by a genuine sense of everything is gonna be okay. That's the starting point of the flourishing life. And everything else stems from there. And Jesus came to give us that life for now and for eternity. And it's the news of that flourishing life. It's the news of what Jesus did for us that actually heals all of the brokenness of the world. Now, human beings have all sorts of, we have all sorts of attempts, and many of them are good attempts at righting the wrongs of the world. In fact, it wouldn't take us long to find all sorts of causes and movements and political agendas that are well-intended to heal and to bring justice to legitimate wrongs in the world. The problem is there is no cause, no agenda, and no human leader that can actually change the root of the problem, which is always in human hearts. Always in human hearts. Only Jesus can actually do that. And that's why the good news is the answer. But sometimes do you question, how does what we talk about in here on a Sunday morning translate to what you watch on the news or see on social media during the week? Do you ever feel like there's just like too wide of a gap? You're like, how do, that person, those people would never be in a church singing crazy songs and maybe raising their hands or clapping to a God they can't see. Like how, how does what Jesus has done in me ever affect the people on the other side of the globe or the people in Congress or the people at my office or the people that live down the hall in my home, right? 
And Jesus has a pretty simple strategy, actually, for how the good news is supposed to bring healing to the world. It's simple. We don't always like the strategy. How many of you know sometimes the simplest strategies, they're simple, but they're not fun all the time? Jesus has lots of strategies like that. It's usually pretty simple, not too complicated, but not always very fun. And Jesus had a strategy for the good news. He shared it in Matthew 28, kind of in his, his uh, creme de la creme, the final comments of all of his teaching, of all of his life. Matthew 28, 18 through 19, Jesus came and told his disciples after his resurrection, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, I'm telling you with all of that authority, with all the wisdom, knowledge, and power in the universe, I'm telling you, go and make disciples. Disciples are apprentices followers, students, go and make disciples of all the nations, that's everywhere, baptizing them, that's adoption, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that's the family of God. So Jesus said, here's the deal, my whole life, my death, and my resurrection has been preparing you to do something to share this good news with everyone else before it's too late. Because when we die, it's too late. When Jesus returns to finish the restoration project on the world, it's too late. There is a point where it is too late, and if we have not received the grace of God, we lose access to the grace of God. Now, thankfully, God is very patient. He waits our whole lives. He's waiting through all of history, and he has this plan for the restoration of the world, and he wants us to go and tell people. He wants us to go as followers of Jesus to go and teach other people what it means to follow Jesus. He wants us to go teach them to follow Jesus to the point that they will go through the ultimate adoption ceremony, baptism, into the ultimate family, God's and find flourishing that way. There's just one little problem with God's plan. It counts on us, the broken people, the people who needed saved, the people who needed the cross, the people who need God's spirit to come and breathe fresh life in us. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I'm like, Jesus, why didn't you just do it all yourself? Would have been way faster. You're way better at this than I am. And Jesus said, I'm sending you. I saved you so I could send you, so that you can save others, and we're gonna celebrate together. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, the disciples summed it up this way, that Jesus told them, go into all the world and preach, proclaim, tell, share the good news to everyone. Proclaim the good news to everybody. Here's the deal. Jesus' strategy to restore the world, and think about this. I'm not, I'm, this is not just nice language. Jesus' actual strategy to actually restore the world in every category of brokenness, it begins with his followers sharing the good news with other people who don't know it yet. That's the catalyst of the strategy. That Jesus' strategy to the restore of the world starts with us sharing the good news with those who don't know it yet. That's what he has planned in his sovereignty and his wisdom because there's something about the Father. There's something about Jesus who loves to partner with us. He created the world for us to partner with him in ruling and cultivating this earth. And when we rejected that, he saved us and now wants to partner with us in redeeming this world, in restoring people's souls and calling them back to him. I don't know why God so wants to partner with us, except if you've ever been around a kid or or somebody that starts to do what you do and follow and hopefully the good things that you do. I know it's horrible. Sometimes I see my kids following in my bad habits and I'm like, oh man. But when they actually follow in some of the good things, I'm like, wow, there's a sense of pride and joy that wells up in me, much like Pastor Chelsea shared the generosity story in her family. It's a beautiful story and God loves to share and to model for us and us to follow his example. So his strategy starts with us sharing the good news with those who don't know it yet. Here's my concern. My concern is that everybody in this room and those listening online already knows that. I'm very concerned about that because most of us aren't Christians for very long before we know this truth. We wrestle with it And many of us do nothing with it. That's concerning. And I'm standing here before you as someone that way too often does not do as much with this command of Jesus, this last ask of my Savior, 
I don't do as much with it as I should. And maybe you don't either. In fact, maybe we too quickly latch on to the other causes and solutions of our world and we leave Jesus's to the wayside and hope somebody else will do it. And here at Sound Life Church, we're gonna be a good news church. We're gonna be a church that's about the restoration of people. We're gonna be a church that's about sharing the good news of Jesus. We're gonna be a church that's about glorifying Jesus because with your last breath, the story that is most worth telling is the story of what Jesus has done for humanity. You and I will never do anything more heroic, more glorious, more beautiful than what Jesus has already done. The most glorious pursuit of our lives is to be a servant of that story. It's to be an ambassador and a messenger of that story, but we already know that. We struggle to do something with it. And many of us live next to neighbors who don't know the good news. We work alongside coworkers who don't know the good, good news. We walk through communities day after day who don't know the good news of Jesus, and we don't share it with them. Guys are like, man, Caleb, couldn't we just have a nice summer message? I mean, it's going to be 90 degrees out today. Take it easy. Here's the thing. I read the Bible, and it convicts me every time. And we can't preach the last 12 weeks on the good news of Jesus being the answer to the broken world and only apply it to ourselves. Textbook selfishness right there. It's the reverse of what Jesus came to save us for. He's called us to share it. It's kind of a big deal, and I, I love how the Apostle Paul explains it in 2 Corinthians 5, and over this next month, we're gonna look at some different key passages, primarily in the New Testament, that explain to us the, the why and the how of sharing the good news. And here is my hope for you. Here's my hope for you, not because it makes things better for me or Jesus or anyone else, but because you will not live out your true purpose unless you begin to grasp the significance of you. Not your spouse, who's more social than you, not your pastor, because he went to Bible school, so he should be better at this than everybody. Not anybody else, but you begin to have a desire and a willingness to share the good news of Jesus wherever there's an opportunity for it. That's my hope, is that over this next month that Sound Life Church becomes a, an engine for sharing the good news in our communities, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your home, everywhere that you go, that we begin to think and saturate our spheres of influence with the good news of Jesus. And if we're not doing that, here's the beautiful thing. Jesus is gracious. He sent his spirit to overcome our inadequacies, and he is more than willing to walk us through this journey. You are welcome in a community of people that are not always good at this. How many of you would say, I'm not always that good at sharing my faith? Raise your hand. Let's just confess to each other, right? It's okay. You're not here because you're perfect. You're here because you need to grow. And Jesus is the best way to do that. And so let's look at what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to kind of step around here a little bit because he's, he's weaving some thoughts in and out. But in verse 11, he kind of sums up the first half of chapter 5 where he's been talking to them about this idea that we as Christians sometimes forget that everything that we have in our lives, we are accountable to God for. Do you know that there is a judgment we have been saved from? It's the eternal judgment. We are saved and our, our souls are cleansed of unrighteousness by the blood of Jesus on the cross. But Christians will still be judged in a different way for how we have invested our lives in what matters most. We will be assessed, we will, and, and the Bible doesn't say, it's not that God will turn us away. In fact, if you want to read about this, a good little passage on it was actually in our Bible reading, I think today or yesterday, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. That's a different place where Paul talks about the fact that all of our lives are going to stand before God, and God is going to look at, did our, did our life do something that lasts for eternity, or did we just spend it on selfish things that won't go with us into eternity? And here's the crazy thing, every thought, every, every breath that you have, the energy that you spend every day can be invested in eternal ways as worship to God and as mission in this world, 
or it can be invested in selfish ways that are just about you enjoying this life more. And the latter is way easier for us. It comes a lot more naturally, doesn't it? But we are called to live our lives and invest it for the kingdom and not to just put boundaries around ourselves and say, this is what it looks like for me to be comfortable and happy and be taken care of and all these things. But how much can we invest our lives for eternity? That should be the question that we wake up with every day and we all have a different set of circumstances, relationships, opportunities, gifts, talents, abilities, all those things. And you won't be assessed on my opportunities or my gifts and talents or my life. You'll only be assessed on yours, but we should wake up every day and say, how do I invest my life the most for something that matters in eternity today? How do I do that? Not how do I kind of guard my own and keep mine and be happier and be more comfortable and all those things. That is totally the way of the world. It is the way of the devil. It is not the way of Christians. You know, the world says, hey, set up healthy boundaries to protect yourself. You know, the Bible says set up different boundaries to protect your worship of Jesus and your ministry to other people. To sustain. Boundaries for Christians are about sustaining the most amount of ministry to God and people that we are capable of. Boundaries in the world are about protecting as much of our own comfort as we possibly can. So we have to be careful to invest our lives in what matters the most. And so Paul's been talking about this and he sums it up in 2 Corinthians 5, 11. He says, because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others of the gospel. God knows we are sincere and I hope you know this too. And so what Paul's talking about here in, in chapter five is he's talking about this mix of our responsibility to Jesus and our responsibility to the people around us because really they're the same responsibility. We're responsible to honor Jesus. We're responsible to live our lives alongside him. But so much of what Jesus has called us to in this season of history before his return is to live like he did. And what did Jesus do? Jesus lived for other people he died for other people, and he rose from the dead for other people. He didn't do any of those things for himself. He did those things for other people. He did those things for you and me and for everyone in our spheres of influence. So he says, because we understand, do you understand your fearful responsibility to the Lord? I know there's too many days where I don't. Too many days where I feel responsible to myself and nobody else. And yet scripture reminds us that we are responsible to Jesus for whatever energy we can muster up, for whatever thoughts or intelligence he has given us. We are responsible for the relationships around us. We are responsible for how we navigate the lives that he has given us. And I love that word fearful because I don't know about you, anytime someone tells me I'm responsible, I am, I am immediately afraid. I'm afraid of failing, I'm afraid of dropping the ball, I'm afraid I'm not enough, I'm afraid, I'm just afraid of, of being exposed. And I think that most of us are, we are much better at passing on responsibility than taking it, but you can't pass on the responsibility of being you. Only you can do that. And you are responsible. And so how does, how does the Apostle Paul navigate this fearful responsibility? He understands it. We can understand it from him. What he understands, when he understands fully what it means to live unto God, the number one way that he approaches that is to try to persuade others to follow Jesus. He uses that word persuade. In the Greek, that word persuade doesn't just mean debate or, or argue. It can mean those things, but it can also mean cajole, convince, to make appealing. It means that whatever way you can to persuade someone, good, bad, or whatever, that you are doing that. You're, you're doing whatever it takes to help them know what it means to follow Jesus, helping them know what it means to be loved by Jesus, that you will do whatever it takes covers a lot of ground. And that's really what he wants us to do as well. It's what the Lord wants you to do. He wants you to do whatever it takes to help someone receive the good news. He wants you to do whatever it takes to help your coworkers receive the good news. 
He wants you to do whatever it takes to help your neighbors and other people experience the good news. Do you know what that means? It means it's gonna be uncomfortable sometimes. It means you're gonna have to step out of your personality sometimes. It means that you're gonna have to value someone else more than you value yourself. Doing whatever it takes means that you are willing to sacrifice yourself just like Jesus did so that someone else can experience the good news of Jesus. That's the model Jesus has given to us. And I love that he says, God knows that we're sincere and I hope that you do as well because when we are doing whatever it takes to help someone else experience the good news, sincerity really matters. Being genuine really matters. We really have to help people experience the good news. And so I wanna encourage you to think in terms of your mission as something, as whatever it takes to help people experience the good news and to sincerely desire that. You know, I think that that sincerity factor is one of the bigger factors in most of our walks today is that we know people need to come to the good news. We know the information. We know the facts. And yet we don't sincerely want them to come to know Jesus. Let that sink in for a little bit. If you love Jesus at all, if, you're, if you are a, a, a faith follower of Jesus, that is a convicting reality. And it's revealed by the fact that we let every other obstacle and excuse keep us from sharing that good news, don't we? Sincerity matters, which is why the next piece is maybe the most important part. If you skip ahead to verse 14, after he's talking a little bit about their ministry, he says in verse 14, either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. And I want you to notice there that it's Christ's love, he says, controls us. Again, the Greek word there can be compels, motivates, drives. If you're a driven person, it's always good to ask yourself, what is it that's driving me? If you're a type A personality, a D on the disc, whatever, like me, it's good to every now and then stop and be like, is the right thing driving me? Is this the Holy Spirit driving me? Is this God's love driving me? Or is this selfish ambition? Is this arrogance? Is this fear? What is it that's driving me? Well, the Apostle Paul was pretty clear. You know what drives me? Not the same thing that drove me to kill Christians in the beginning. Do you know what drives me? What drives me is the fact that after I killed his followers, Jesus still loved me. What drives me is that long before I ever loved God, God loved me. What drives me is that God, who did nothing wrong, died for me. I've never seen that kind of love. And it drives me. It motivates me. It compels me. It controls me. And when that kind of love controls you, when love controls you, nothing stops you. When you love yourself the most, all sorts of things stop you. When you love yourself the most, you will stop at everything to make sure that you don't, you aren't at risk. But when you are filled with the love of another, you don't care about yourself anymore. You are entrusted to someone else's care. You are entrusted to someone else's love. You're, you know that God loves you better than you can ever love yourself. So why are you worried about how you look? Why are you worried about the future? Why are you worried about how you'll be understood? Why are you worried about those things? That's another sermon that Jesus preached. Why are you worried when God loves you that much? And so Paul is saying, hey, do you know what motivates this crazy ministry that we do, this radical? You know, Paul went everywhere to preach the gospel. And he preached it whether people wanted to hear it or not sometimes. And as a result, some people loved him, some people hated him. Some people welcomed him into their nice homes and gave him big meals. And other people beat him to a pulp until they thought he was dead. I mean, that is a bad job. When you're like, hey, about... One out of three times, you're going to get beat within an inch of death. Probably some prison time involved there. But Jesus' radical, sacrificial love 
motivated Paul. And that same radical, sacrificial love is what transforms our purpose in life. That is what is meant to motivate you. And for some of us, can I just challenge you, some of us, our our takeaway from this morning is just for you to sit still and quiet and meditate on what God did for you. Let the good news soak into you. Recognize that you didn't deserve Jesus to die on a cross for you. Not if you believe the Bible. We didn't deserve all the good things that God put in our world. We don't deserve any of it. We deserve to already be in hell. But Jesus loved us more than that. Jesus loved us at the expense of his own dignity. Jesus loved us at the expense of his own comfort. Jesus loved us at the expense of everything good that he could hold on to. He dispensed it to give himself for us. And so he says, because Christ died for all, we believe that we die to that old life. I want to live in the life that is loved, not the old life where I have to love myself. It's Jesus' love that transforms our purpose in life. And he goes on to tell us how that works. In verse 15, he says, He died, Jesus died for everyone, so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they'll live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So do you see what happens there? Jesus died so that we could die to the old way of living. He died so that we don't have to live for ourselves anymore. He died so that we could live for the one who actually loves us well. He died so we can live for Jesus, who also died for us and was raised for us. Which means we get to live no longer for us who can't sustain ourselves, who can't love ourselves, who can't actually provide for our own needs. And we can start to live for the one who already has a plan to provide for all of our needs. And that's what the good news transforms in us. He goes on in verse 16, he says, so we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. If you haven't stopped looking at people differently than you did before you knew Jesus, you don't know Jesus that well yet. At one time we thought of Jesus merely from a human point of view. If you don't think differently about Jesus than you did before you knew Jesus, you don't know Jesus that well. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. A new life has begun. Do you know how the love of Jesus, the radical love of Jesus transforms our purpose in life? It starts by transforming our perspective. The good news of Jesus, this news that that God When we rejected him, our expectation is that God wants to rule us and crush us. Human nature says, God must want to control me. God must, you know, it's me against God. That's literally the decision Adam and Eve made in the Garden of Eden when the serpent said, man, God's just trying to hold stuff back from you. And instead of trusting God, they're like, game on. We'll beat God at his own game. Give me that fruit. And it's been the same way ever since. We think God's out to get us, control us, make us obey. We're like bitter teenagers wondering why our parents have a curfew. Seriously, that's that's literally how we respond to God. And, And so when we see that God came and lived among us and died for us, we're like, oh, that's not controlling behavior. That's not how a that's not how abusers act. God must love me. God loves me. And then when you realize that he loved you while you were still in bitter teenager mode, you were not loving him, he was loving you. It starts to change your perspective. I mean, and haven't many of us have this experience, you know, I was very critical of my parents' marriage, my parents' marriage until I got married. I was like, Dad, how do I handle this situation? Thanks, Dad. That wasn't my attitude before, 
I saw how hard it was to be married. Same thing again, a few years later, have kids. Very critical of my parents' parenting. I mean, I was a pretty good product of it, I guess. No, I'm just kidding. Very critical until I'm a parent. And then what am I, instead of being like, oh, my parents, you know, borderline, oh, my goodness, I can't even believe I survived. Dad, how do I do this? Because your perspective changes when you realize the sacrifice that someone else was making for you. Your perspective changes. And the good news, that's what the good news does. It changes our perspective, which then changes our purpose. The good news changes our perspective on God, on each other, and on ourselves. From negative to positive. And have you ever noticed that when your perspective of someone is, is already preset to a negative, it is essentially impossible for you to build a constructive relationship with them. It doesn't matter if it's your spouse, coworker, neighbor. If you're in your head, you're like, they're, all, they're out to get me, and I'm gonna get them first. They're out to get me, and I'm on watch. If your perspective is negative, there's no way you can have a healthy relationship with them. It's when your perspective begins to turn to something positive, you're like, oh, they do love me. Oh, they do care. Oh, wow, they did something nice for me. And then I'll, have you ever had that, mom, that moment where you thought somebody was out to get you and it changed and all of a sudden you're like, oh, we can be friends. Let's be friends. And your heart changed from being competitive with them for resources or whatever to all of a sudden you're playing on the same team. I'm a naturally very suspicious person. So I've had that experience over and over and over in life. You know, I was on staff early on with another pastor and for some reason just kind of two young, driven guys, both trying to like do our best, we were just on each other's nerves all the time, and that guy would let me know. And I was always like, man, what is his problem? And in my head, he was my enemy. And then one time through a, a ministry experience, we, we, got, we shared our stories with each other, and actually he came and he said, hey, Caleb, I just want you to know I've been really hard on you, but but I, it's because I've been intimidated by some things that you didn't, you didn't do to me, but I've been intimidated by this. And, and I was like, oh, man, well, I've been feeling the same way. And, you know, it was just like one of those moments where you, you turn from enemies into, and this guy is now a good friend of mine, something I love and respect in the ministry. And it's amazing how when your perspective turns from negative to positive, now constructive relationship is possible. And do you know that's why the good news changes the world? Because the good news changes our hearts, and we suddenly see God as our ally, not our enemy. And then he changes our hearts towards each other, and instead of seeing everyone that is different from us, for whatever reason, they're born different, raised different, different politics, different country, different whatever, instead of seeing them as our enemy, that person's different enemy. We see them as different and interesting. We see them as different but a human being made in the image of God. We see them as someone that's worth getting to know. We see someone that needs God's love just as much as we need God's love. We see them just as broken as we are, but with just as much potential as we have. And when our perspective changes, instead of saying, man, I hate people like that, I hate, ah, which is hate, we suddenly are like, man, what's going on in their life? What has gotten them to that point? Why do they think that way? You know, as we go into, you know, just kind of another political season, and I, you know, mailed in my ballot last week, and, you know, I think we got to be good citizens and do our part, do our best for the good of our nation, but there's a lot of people that don't agree with whatever you think. Is your perspective on them, man, may God's judgment fall on them. You might not say it, but some of us act like it. Or is your prayer, God, let your mercy come on our nation? Would you unite us again around things that matter? Would you unite us again around things that build flourishing, not take it away? Would you unite us again around the principles of your word? Would you unite us again? Would you help us to love one another? Because that's God's desire. Jesus died for them just as much as he died for you. 
But only the good news changes our perspective, and then it changes our perspective on ourselves. We stop seeing ourselves as all on our own. We stop seeing ourselves as looking out for number one. We stop seeing ourselves as a failure or, or broken. We stop seeing our, ourselves as someone that I just have anger issues or I'm just a controlling person or I just have a victim mentality or I just, this is the way I've always been. It's the way my family's always been. It's the only way I know how to do life. That's just me doing me. No, the good news gives you perspective that you may have been that way, but you're not always gonna be that way. The good news gives you perspective that yes, you are broken, but God is in the business of fixing. The good news gives you the perspective that yes, that was an old life, but that's not your future life. That you are built, you are designed, you were saved to be new and different than you were before. And that's a process, that's a transformation, but the more you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm broken, fix me, the more he leads you on a journey to be, to be restored. Yeah, right. And he sees you as the new you. But when you, you have to see yourself through the good news to stop seeing yourself as the old you. I don't wanna be the old Caleb. I don't wanna be, I don't wanna be the guy that's selfish and lustful and angry and bitter and suspicious. I don't wanna be that Caleb. And praise Jesus, I don't have to be that, Caleb, yes. right? And you, when you see what Jesus has done for you, you don't have to be that old you. You don't have to be. You can be the new you that Jesus designed you to be. But the good news changes our perspective so that it can change our purpose. And that is what the good news does. Because when we have all of that positive perspective, when we see God, ourselves, and everyone around us as a focal point of love, it changes the way that we walk through the world. We can walk through, the, through life with a smile instead of a side stare. You know? We can walk through the world thinking, Jesus, how do you want me to love this person? How can I bless this person? How can I give them a glimpse of Jesus today? How can I look more like Jesus and less like the old Caleb? And all of a sudden, the good news transforms you and the people around you at the same time. That's the way it works. And that's what the good news does. But then when it transforms our perspective and our purpose, what are we supposed to do with it? This is where, this is where it gets hard, right here. Verse 18, all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. That's the good news. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Do you see, you cannot separate the good news from your responsibility to it. We can't say, look what God did without knowing that we are responsible to share that with as many as possible. You, we can't do it. We cannot separate the two. The minute we separate it, we're like, that's what God did, and I don't have to do anything about it, you do not understand what God did. You have missed what God did. You have not received the good news if your heart is not burning to share the good news. You're trying to take advantage of God but you haven't experienced the blessing of God. You haven't experienced the transformation of God. You haven't experienced what it means to do, be a new creation because you're still living for yourself. And as long as you're living for yourself, you're gonna be haunted by the things your old self always was. Insecurity, selfishness, pride, all those things. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, he says, hey, I, I wish that you were living by the Spirit, but you're not, you're like spiritual babies. You're not living by the Spirit. You're not living the new life yet. You, and he says, you're saved, but you aren't living the life you were saved to live yet. How many of us live 
And Jesus in his grace is going to save us, but we are not living the life that we were created to live. Spiritual babies have never matured beyond the, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me. I don't have to love anybody else. Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me. That's baby stuff. We're called to spiritual maturity. We're called to grow in Jesus. We are called to move from being recipients of his love to being vehicles of his love, so full of his love that it's flowing through us everywhere that we go. What that scripture reminds us is that God's greatest desire is reconciliation with all people. That word reconciliation is used there multiple times. Reconciliation, that that Greek word literally is, is used to describe a bridge being rebuilt. You know, God created us connected with him and sin broke the bridge. Our choice to reject God broke the connection between us and God. Jesus' death on the cross opened the possibility of the bridge being restored. We each make a decision whether to reconnect our part of the bridge. But we all have a responsibility, says he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's given us the message of reconciliation. Those of us that have connected the bridge, who have built that bridge back on the blood and life of Jesus Christ, on the power of Jesus Christ, we are now responsible to go to everyone else and say, hey, the bridge is open again. Come on, the bridge is open. You can cross the bridge. The city's burning. Get out of town, cross the bridge. We're called to be bridge builders. We're called to reconnect the dots. We're called to help people see you rejected God, but he loves you anyways. You're broken, but he can fix you. We plead, come back to God. Now, we, pers- we do it persuasively, as Paul says, right? In verse 11, we do it. We fit the gospel to the situation. We're smart about how we share it. But, and our heart has to be right, not controlling people. Some of the worst atrocities in human history are when powerful people forced people to come to Jesus, which isn't really coming to Jesus, right? But when we say with sincere hearts, in a persuasive way that makes sense for the context that we're in, come back to God. The bridge is open. God's desire is to show you his love. He died to show you his love. He's never given up on you. When we open the bridge, we are actually experiencing the fullness of the good news of Jesus. We are created to be bridge builders. And that's Jesus' strategy to restore the world. His strategy to to restore the world is to send his followers to share his good news with everyone that hasn't heard it yet. Here's the crazy thing. For a long time, America functioned under the idea that the people that didn't know the good news were all outside of our borders, outside of our community. America has been the greatest mission-sending nation in the history of the world But in that season, we forgot how to minister to one another. We have excused ourselves from being missionaries to our own communities. We have excused ourselves from the call of the gospel to witness and to share in whatever spheres of influence that God has called us to be. We are responsible for that. And here's the thing. I just want to tell you as your pastor, this is a journey for me. This is a journey for me. The Holy Spirit's challenging me to be better about sharing the good news. I don't want to go past a checker at the grocery store, a barista at the coffee shop. I don't, want to, I don't want to drive through an intersection without thinking about the good news for the people around me. I don't want to walk in relationship with people for, for long periods of time and then never hear the good news from me. I don't want to keep excusing myself, oh, that would be uncomfortable, that would be awkward, that would be, what is the best way to persuade and do that, uncomfortable or not? I don't want to hesitate to offer to pray for someone. I don't want to hesitate to share the good news. I don't want to hesitate to say, Jesus loves you. I don't want to hesitate to say, hey, do you know Jesus? I don't want to hesitate to say, hey, do you go to church anywhere? I don't want to hesitate. All these different ways. They're all just different, different soundbite mechanisms to show people the love of Jesus. I don't want to hesitate. And I have way too often. I want to be more like people that have shared the good news with me. 
I wanna be more like the people who are unashamed to share the good news in my life. I wanna be more like the people that led my parents to the Lord. I wanna be more like the people that are on the mission field sharing the good news in far more hostile environments than we can comprehend. I wanna be bold and trust that the Holy Spirit's gonna back me up. I wanna open my mouth not always knowing exactly how it's gonna come out and trust that the Holy Spirit is gonna do the work. Because here's what I found. People are not convinced to follow Jesus by the flashiest, best communicators in the world. Because if that was the case, the American church would be flourishing, and it's not. It's not. The good news has always been a grassroots movement. The good news has always been at its best when the poor and the uneducated and the foolish things of this world are sharing it one with another. And so Jesus... Make us foolish if that's what it takes to share the good news and save a soul. I wanna challenge you with four areas where you and I can take responsibility for those around us to hear the good news and then I'll leave you alone. Well, kind of. I'll hand you over to the Holy Spirit and he'll mess with all of us. There's four areas where we need to take responsibility. The first one is to cultivate compassion for others' eternity. We live in a society that wants us to have compassion for all sorts of surface level issues and to forget about the eternal destination of a soul. We wanna have compassion for momentary circumstances. We wanna have compassion for surface level life conditions. We we wanna victimize everything in society so that we can then force compassion on it when in the midst of it, we're neglecting people's eternal souls. And the worst part about it is that too many Christians don't care about people's eternity. There's too many days I walk through and I don't think about the eternity of the people that I am, I am walking with. And so I just want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to cultivate compassion for people's eternity. I want you to ask this question in your head. If they die today, where are they going? I want you to ask this question. Have they heard from me the path to eternal life? I want you to cultivate in your heart. I want you to think about the fact that if the people in your life keep living as they are living, where will they end up? And by the way, eternal life is not just for after this life. It also affects the outcome, right? If your coworkers don't come in contact with Jesus, what does that mean for their kids? What does that mean for their marriage? What does that mean for their neighbors? It's a cascading effect. The gospel is exponentially powerful, but so is the lack of it. We have to cultivate compassion in our hearts that cares for the people around us. Then secondly, do you know what the the outlet, you'll know, you'll know that you have cultivated compassion when the next thing starts to happen more often. You need to pray persistently for their hearts to turn to Jesus. I made these catchy little phrases so that you can remember them, okay? Cultivate compassion, pray persistently. This means that, practically, what this means is that you should start a list that you are literally going to pray out loud for every day. Lord, I pray for John at work that you would help me to share the good news with him. Lord, I pray for my cousin in Florida that you will help him to meet somebody that will draw him to Christ. Lord, I pray for this person. Here's the thing. You should focus, uh, I mean, you should spend a good 20 minutes a day praying for lost people that you know. Doesn't need to be long. Jesus knows what you're talking about. But Jesus wants to partner with you and your prayers are powerful. There's something about the authority that the devil has been given in this world by human sin that is broken by prayer to Jesus. It's broken by prayer. It's because of the blood of Jesus. It's because of the power of Jesus on the cross. But when we pray to Jesus, it breaks through the control of the devil. It's a weird thing. I don't know. It's a spiritual thing. We'll understand when we get to heaven. What we need to know is that it's true and that's how it works. We need to pray for lost people that whatever it takes, their hearts will turn to Jesus. There was one of my, one of my best friends in the world. Her name is Grandma Jean. She's 94. She lives in a, in a home in Portland, Oregon. She was one of my best youth leaders ever. When I was a youth pastor, she was in her late 80s. She had to turn her hearing aids off during youth worship because it was like blowing her hearing aids out like I know some people are doing every Sunday morning during the summer while traditions is closed. Thank you for loving Jesus more than your hearing aids. And, and here's the thing. Grandma Jean, was she would stand in worship. She couldn't hear a thing that was happening and she was interceding for those students. Yeah. 
She would write a note. There was 100 kids in that youth group, and she would write a note every year to every student, a handwritten note that was a prophetic word God had given her for each one of them. She would write it for them by name. She knew that she knew more of the kids in the youth group than I did. Thank you, Jesus, for people to help pastors not look stupid. And so she understood the power of prayer, but you know where she learned it? When she came to Christ in her 40s, her husband was not a Christ follower, and she began to pray with, for him. And how many of you are a spouse praying for a spouse that doesn't know Jesus? Um, and, and we pray for our spouses. She prayed for her spouse. And one time he was going on a fishing trip, and right before this fishing trip, she's like, Jesus, it's been so long. Do whatever it takes to help him come to know you. She's like, I learned what that prayer was because his boat sank, he almost drowned, and as he was almost drowning, he cried out, God, if you save me, I'll believe in you. And God saved him. God saved him. And she's like, I didn't know that I was praying a near-death experience over my husband. But what I do know is that it's better for him to know Jesus than to suffer through anything else, or than to not suffer through anything else in this world. Pray persistently for people. Pray nice things for your spouse. That's not a... That's not like a lesson to be applied on everything. Lord, do whatever it takes to get him to take out the garbage today. Okay, don't, that's salvation only kind of prayer, all right? The third one is this, sacrificially serve like Jesus did. Serving is the proof that you care about someone's eternity. Serving is where you lower yourself like Jesus did for us. Serving is where you put your dignity and your comfort aside and you do what someone else needs of you more than what you wanna do for yourself. Right? And so serving sometimes looks like an introvert being an extrovert for the sake of people that don't know Jesus. We need to stop using our personalities and our history as an excuse, people. Jesus saved us. He transformed us. There are no excuses. There is nothing that you are not capable of if Jesus is leading you. There is nothing that Jesus can't do in you. Stop making excuses. Take those excuses to Jesus and let him transform them into testimonies. Every excuse you have is meant to be a testimony of God's transformation, of his healing, of his wisdom, of his truth, of his power, of his transformation. And so sometimes we have to do things, oh, I'm too tired, I don't have energy to do that, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can serve one more time. Oh, Lord, I'm just too emotionally exhausted. I cannot, I can't go out to coffee with this person. I can't do that. I can't talk to him on the phone. I can't, I get it, people. I hate talking on the phone. But by the power of the Spirit, this life, it's not my own. I live by the breath of God inside of me and nothing else. The moment he stops breathing life into us, we drop dead. We need to stop making excuses and serve people, right? I do things with neighbors and friends that I have no desire to do so that I can build a relationship to share the good news with them. If they're listening right now, you know my agenda. I'm going to share the good news with you. Right, I do things with people I have no desire to do. And my goal is I'm going to share the good news with them. I am going to build a bridge. I'm going to show them Jesus. I'm going to show them that church isn't what they've heard. Christians aren't what they've heard. Pastors aren't what they've heard. I'm gonna show them the love of Jesus by simply doing what they need me, want me, whatever to do, not what I want to do. We gotta serve. So cultivate compassion. You pray persistently you sacrificially serve. And then the last thing is this, and this is not the most minimal, it's the most important. You share shamelessly. See, catchy phrases, you like that? So remember them. Share shamelessly about what Jesus has done in your life. You know, one of the most despicable things that is a reality, that is a social norm in our culture is, you know, we have the freedom of speech, but you don't always feel that free, do you? You have the freedom of speech. You can say whatever you want. But you know there will be social consequences. There might not be legal ones, but there will be social ones. Some of you live in jobs where you've been threatened with, with like, you cannot talk about your faith, you cannot talk about your religion. And you need to read the book of Acts because the disciples were also told they could not talk about Jesus. And what did they say? Is it better for us to fear you or fear God? Guys, here's the thing. We don't, we don't want to be controversial for no reason. We're not looking to stir up a fight. 
But if you're just being an authentic person, sharing authentically about what Jesus has done in your life, you have nothing to be ashamed of. If you get fired for it, God will provide for you. That's a promise. If your spouse leaves you, God will take care of you. That's a promise, 1 Corinthians 7. You can read it. You have nothing to be ashamed of. Stop buying into the lie that you have something to be ashamed of. It is the despicable whisper of the devil to say, oh, don't say anything. It is the whisper of the devil to make you feel afraid of being embarrassed. It's the whisper of the devil to make you think that you don't have something worth sharing. It's the whisper of the devil, and you need to say in your head, shut up! And I'm gonna say something. And you know what? Here's the crazy thing. I, some of the moments where I have been bold, I have sounded really stupid. I could tell you stories, but oh, we don't have time. That's too bad. <laughs> and you know what? The Lord has used it. The Lord's used it. And it's amazing to me how the Lord puts us in the right moment at the right time and you don't even know it. Have you ever shared something about Jesus and people said, man, I've been thinking about that lately? Or you share a story of what God's done in your life, you're like, and somebody's like, man, I've been struggling with the same thing. And you thought they had no struggles in the world because they're too embarrassed as well. We live in a shame culture that shames people to be authentic for Jesus or for other things. Let's be unashamed. You have nothing to be ashamed of. Some of you need to look in the mirror every morning and say, Jesus, help me to be unashamedly who you have called me to be. We live in a culture that wants you to be unashamedly messed up. Like, here's the worst thing about me. I'm gonna brag about that, but I'm not gonna tell you anything else. We need to be unashamedly belonging to Jesus. I wanna challenge you to pray every morning before you get out of your car and go into the office. Lord, help me to be unashamedly yours today. Help my mouth to be unashamedly yours. Help my persona to be unashamedly yours. Help me to walk in the joy of the Lord. You know, I watched my wife in a certain situation. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come. I, I watched my wife be criticized for being joyful in a community that we were a part of. And people would be like, what are you so happy about? Because like, it's just, what, what, stop faking it. And I was like, oh boy. <laughs> you guys are about to get the both, both barrels of the Jeanette Joy. But I remember that for a while there, it kind of messed with her. She's like, man, am I, am I faking it? Is it am, I, am I too much? Am I this or am I that? And I just remember, you know, as a little bit more introverted person who sometimes likes to kind of hang back, I know, I, you know, I step out of my introversion every Sunday morning because I love you. So some of you are like, you're not introverted. I go home Sunday afternoons and I hide until my church barbecue when I become an extrovert again because I love people, Right? Here's the thing. I remember as someone who's an introvert was like, oh man, babe, maybe you could tone it down a little bit. I remember being like, no. That I know you well enough to know that joy is straight from Jesus. There's not enough joyful people in the world. Be unashamedly joyful. Not fake joyful. Spend enough time with Jesus until you know how much he loves you. Until you know what he's created you for until you know. And you know what? Can I just tell you for some of you today, some of you, we're, we're gonna sing a song in a moment about building our lives on who Jesus is, right? But I want you to think about, do you need to, where, where's your next step? Do you need to just cultivate compassion? Do you need to say, Jesus, my heart's been wrong towards the world around me. I do not care enough about the eternity of the people in my community. Change my heart. Holy Spirit, fill me with a boldness and a passion to love those around me. Some of you, that, that compassion means that you need to change your tactics and stop Bible thumping your coworkers. You know, Jesus didn't come to Bible thump, he came to lay his life down. He died. Some of you cultivating compassion means, Jesus, show me what it looks like to die for my coworkers. Not literally, hopefully, but die to myself, die to my pride, die to my personal agenda. Cultivate compassion. Some of you need to say, Jesus, teach me how to pray persistently. Give me a burden to pray. There is no excuse. God did not put parameters on how good you are at speaking to pray. He said, do it. 
do it and don't quit doing it. And when you're tired of it, do it more. And when you physically can't do it on your own, my spirit will fill you and do it more because prayer breaks the power of the enemy. And some of you, you need to get back to that sacrificially serving. Get off your high horse. You're not better than anyone else. You just have a little more of Jesus' love in you. Jesus gave you his love. You know his love. You've crossed the bridge. That's the only thing you have going for you. So share that with somebody. Serve other people. And then for some of you, let go of the shame. We need to worship today and let the shame fall, all of, fall off of us. Here's the thing. I stand in, in front of you as a pastor. I've failed in every category. I've failed in everything. Like I can't think of a sin I haven't failed at. Don't go crazy in your imagination. Just like the general topics, okay? But like I've failed at being a good husband. I've failed at being a good dad. I've failed at being a man of integrity. I've failed at those things. But Jesus loves me. He died for me. Sometimes I'm like, you, you shouldn't have, but he did. And not only that, he's not done with me yet. He's not done with you yet. He wants the shame to fall off so he can clothe you with purpose. So just stand with me today. Stand with me today. And as the team leads us in this song, you can sing if that helps you, but the number one thing I want you to do is, Jesus, help me to take on this responsibility to share the good news. What part of the responsibility to share the good news does he want to work in you today? Let's commit ourselves to building our lives on that truth.